From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Arnson. This is your news for Tuesday, August 1st. Today we're speaking with Mary Huditz, a reporter at ProPublica. She recently wrote an article about what happens to Native American remains that were stolen for research. She explains the slow process of repatriation and where things stand decades after a federal law was passed to reunite stolen ancestors with their tribes. This is such a big topic, so maybe if we could start with a summary of the issue and if you could give us a little bit of context and then I'll ask you some more specific questions after that. But yeah, if you could just summarize the issue for us and sort of give us an idea of the scope of this problem. So the main issue is the one of repatriation itself. My colleagues and I have been reporting this year on specifically on the Native American Grace Protection and Repatriation Act. And under that law, which was passed in 1990, there were processes laid out, there were calls from Congress outside of the statute for institutions across the country to start to return human remains and items that had been taken from tribes, often through grave digging and excavations and sometimes through outright like exploitation, primarily in the early 1900s, late 1800s, although excavation continued in some form for many decades after. Institutions today, and there are about 600 of them, Museums, universities, government agencies hold a, around 100,000 human remains taken from Native burials. And that's about half of what they held in 1990 when the law passed. So we've been interested in sort of the very slow response that has occurred to the law, this very slow pace of repatriation over the years, because many people thought um, this work would have been done as many as 20 years ago. And so it seems like that's a really complicated process of getting those remains back to the tribes. Do the tribes have to initiate that process, or is it the museum or the institution's responsibility to start that process? In the law itself, it's in the regulations, it's really the institution's responsibility to tell tribes what they have. Um, So they were mandated to, if they had received any federal funding, they were mandated to make a list of their holdings and then report them under the law so that tribes could then start to see what was there and then make a claim. A lot of institutions are real sticklers for uh, tribes needing to make that claim first, uh, which is a little bit complicated because I think institutions, like tribes received really hundreds and hundreds of these notices um, initially and have continued to, and it's a lot for us, um, often like if especially a resource strapped tribe to, to sift through. So um, some institutions have been really proactive. Um, if you, we have a large database um, at ProPublica about all this, and um, institutions that have repatriated everything have been really proactive about reaching out to tribes, bringing them to the table, facilitating the process, um, not waiting for that initial claim necessarily from the tribe or working with them. And is it the institution's responsibility to cover the cost of like actually getting the remains back to the tribes? No. So a lot of times tribes will shoulder that cost and it's very expensive um, because it requires like many meetings, traveling, often traveling across the country if like an institution is on the East Coast and the tribe is out here in the Southwest where we are. But there are also federal grants available for this. And I guess I will just add on that point is that 
there is definitely a really poignant like argument made among tribal groups and their advocates that like this problem is not one that they created um yet they're very often tasked with remedying it why are you reporting on this now was there something that happened recently that got you into this topic there's a lot of conversation happening right now about the ethics of that a lot of advocates saying that descendant communities should be involved in that research in some way whether it's giving consent or having a chance to have input on it um, which is a lot of what my most recent story is about what are some examples of the types of research or the kinds of questions that are being asked so the research is a range but i know i keep going back deep in history but you know when they excavated the ancestors when museums especially did it They were often trying to find out how people started to populate the continent, you know, like deep, deep history. And some of those questions are still being asked today, like when did people migrate to where they are now and when when were they first present in a certain area? And then some of the research like looks into what people of the past ate. One researcher who does work with tribal communities and centers them in her research Looks has looked at like the past and the present, like diets past and present to sort of start to answer questions about how people have sort of tracked like ancient diseases um, in hopes that helps them sort of answer questions about disease in the present. Um, But that would be an example of like a tribe feeling that they don't know about that. Like if that research is not being shared with them, then they're not really being they're not really benefiting from it. And can you give us some context about like why using ancestral remains is so emotional and so hard for the tribes? I mean, it's kind of self-evident, but just if you could give us some more context for like why specifically this is so painful. Indigenous people believe when they're laying someone to rest that that's going to be their final resting place. Uh, So there's sort of that original point of disturbance that happened. And then the idea that even with a federal law being passed and, and tribes sort of having a pathway to reclaim ancestors, they still sort of run into all these hurdles. And while they're running into these hurdles, more research that can destroy the ancestor to some extent is is also um, happening without their consent. If they're the ones sort of paying the price for that research, is there even any benefit to them? And in some cases, the research, I think, is done, I think some scientists would say ethically, because they're, they are able to get consent of the tribe. In those cases, I think tribes have been able to work with the scientists on um, the questions of the research and also contribute their own knowledge of their people. You can find a link to Hudet's report in today's show notes. When it comes to the Colorado River, nobody uses more water than the farms in California's Imperial Valley. As the Southwest looks for ways to cut back on water use in the face of a drying climate, they're likely to find some in the hot, sunny valley near the Mexican border. KUNC's Alex Hager reports on what it will take for the valley's farmers to conserve more water. Jack Vesey is behind the wheel of his white pickup, cruising past farm fields as far as the eye can see. Uh, This was spring mix over here. This was iceberg lettuce over here. That was spinach and romaine back there and more spinach back there. His family has been growing in the Imperial Valley since the 1940s, and this place grows a lot. The valley produces crops and livestock valued at about $3 billion each year, and to do that, it uses more water than any other farm district or city along the Colorado River. 
it's anywhere from 90 to 95 percent of, of any lettuce you're going to eat from mid-November through March is going to come from Colorado River water. And without that water, well, we're not, you know, uh, we're not growing hot Cheetos for your kids. We're growing medicine for your kids. That supply of Colorado River water, which flows to homes and businesses from Wyoming to Mexico, is shrinking. Climate change is putting less water in, but people have not done enough to take less water out. States and the feds are looking for ways to cut back, and naturally they're ramping up scrutiny on the region's biggest user. On another farm field, John Hawk steps out of his pickup and dons a ball cap to keep the baking summer sun out of his eyes. Do we need to conserve? Absolutely. We need to conserve, but we need to be paid for the conservation. Hawk is another multi-generational farmer. He says the answer is relatively simple. Want farmers to adopt new technologies that use less water? Pull out your wallet. We could use drip or use uh, sprinklers, but but you got to remember that the cost goes way up in a crop. And so how are we compensated for doing that? Another farmer says he knows what he would do with that money because he's already doing it. Alex Jack is walking into a field of alfalfa hay watered through drip irrigation, which waters the notoriously thirsty crop more efficiently. It's like farming with an eyedropper. It's just uh, incredible preciseness for each plant. If he was king for a day, Jack says he'd help pay for more farmers to install it. You know, if you go back and get your grandma's car that had a big V8 in it and everything else, not very good gas mileage, it was big, made out of steel, very heavy, clunky. Nowadays, you look at that car and think, oh my God. Well, unfortunately, a lot of farmers are still driving their grandma's cars, so to speak, when it comes to irrigation. For Jack, new tech in his fields has been expensive, but resulted in higher yields. And he says the Imperial Irrigation District is standing in the way of widespread adoption. They represent the farmers and serve as a clearinghouse for federal and state funds. The district recently proposed big cuts to their take from the river in exchange for money from the Inflation Reduction Act. Tina Shields is one of the district's water managers and says even a big check wouldn't solve the problem overnight. You can't make everybody happy. I mean, if you have 10 farmers, you have 10 different opinions on what the best program is because they're going to advocate for what works for their business model. But there's one more thing that adds a layer of complication. Water law in the West says that people who started using it first will be the last to face cutbacks in times of shortage. And imperial farmers, they were first. They have some of the most legally untouchable water rights in the basin. John Hawk watches water pour onto one of his fields, washing out the salt and getting things ready for another season of growing. He says other places should be on the hook to conserve water first. Don't crowd to the front of the line. It doesn't work. And you'll get a fight out of me. I'll grab you by the neck and say, listen, pal, you pay your dues just like our forefathers did. And as policymakers keep grinding away at new rules for sharing the Colorado River, one thing is clear. The end result is probably going to be expensive, unpopular, or maybe both. I'm Alex Hager. And that's the KZMU News for Tuesday, August 1st. Get your community-powered journalism weekdays on the airwaves at noon and 6 p.m. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.